if you were tasked with telling the most epic story that's ever been told, how would you begin? If you were given the job of telling the greatest story ever been told, how would you start that story? Uh, I'm going to let you know, I think the story of Christmas is the most epic story that's ever been told. The idea that God became man, that he lived with us, he lived as one of us, and then he offered himself in a sacrificial death on our behalf. To me, that's the most epic story. It's the greatest story that's ever been told. Uh, So if you were going to tell that story, the most epic story, how would you start it out? We, we live in a world that knows how to tell great stories, right? Uh, Hollywood knows how to get us into the action, get us into the narrative of a great story. Uh, they know how to set it up with a great trailer. Right now, the, the big movie is Star Wars The Last Jedi, right? Just out of curiosity, how many of you, raise your hands if you've actually gone and seen this movie? Yes, okay, so many of us have gone and seen it already. It's an incredible movie. I, I want to take just a second... And um, I just want to show you a 45-second trailer. It's one of the trailers they released for Star Wars The Last Jedi. Pay attention to how they get you into the action. They get you into the narrative and make you want to, you know, hear more of the story that they're telling. Go ahead. Let the past die. That's the only way to become what you were meant to be. Darkness rises. I need someone to show me my place in all this. Come on! This is not going to go the way you think. Woo! Man, that's awesome, isn't it? Look how they get you into the action of that. As a child of the 80s, I'm ready to lightsaber somebody right now. I'm sorry, (laughs) laser sword somebody right now. Uh, Man, that's just so awesome how they just dive right into the action. So here's what we're going to do tonight. Here's where we're going. We're going to begin in Matthew's gospel with the greatest story that's ever been told. If you're unfamiliar with it, there are four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that you find in the New Testament. And so we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew's gospel, verse 1. This is how Matthew begins the greatest story ever told. This is how he gets you into the action. This is how he gets us into the narrative. Are you ready? I'm just, I'm trembling with anticipation right now. Here we go. Verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And it goes on and on and on until finally verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Really? That's how Matthew gets us into the greatest story ever told? A boring genealogy, that's how he launches us in to the greatest narrative that's ever happened in our planet. 
I wanna, I wanna just ask the question tonight, why would Matthew begin that way? With a boring genealogy. To us, in our world today, in our context, it's like that makes absolutely no sense. And what I wanna pose to you tonight, today is Matthew, uh, to the first century Jewish audience that Matthew was speaking to, this was a Star Wars beginning. The way he begins here, it was a, a jump you right into the action kind of beginning. What you need to know is that Matthew is writing to primarily a Jewish audience, but most people believe that Matthew wrote his gospel from the city of Antioch. Uh, now, what you need to know about the city of Antioch is that in the church that was there in Antioch in the first century, there were Jewish believers, people who had become followers of Jesus from the Jewish religion, uh, but there were also plenty of Gentiles as well. Gentile just means a non-Jewish person. So there are plenty of Gentile people who had become followers of Jesus and were following after him and part of the church there. And so what's happening is that for the Jewish people, they were expecting a Messiah to come. And they had all kinds of questions about who the Messiah was and what he was going to do, what he was supposed to be. And frankly, they had questions about whether or not Jesus really was the Messiah, whether he really fit the bill as the Jewish Messiah. The Gentiles, they had even more questions. For them, okay, even if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, well, then he came for them. He didn't come for us. He didn't come for me. What has that got to do with me? And so what Matthew does is he begins his story of the gospel with a genealogy. Now, what you need to know is in the first century, a genealogy is how you would establish and prove someone's rights and identity and their heritage. That was a very common thing. You would always introduce people through their genealogy if you wanted to establish their, their identity and who they were. Now, we don't do that today. We don't start our resumes with our genealogy. We don't do that. But in first century, that's exactly what they did. That's exactly how they knew. And so what Matthew does is he begins with Jesus' genealogy and he traces Je Jesus' genealogy through two people. David, who was a Jewish king, and Abraham, who was a Gentile person who became the father of the Israelites, the father of the Israelite nation. And so I just want to take a moment and I just want to work our way through and just ask the question, what does Matthew's genealogy say about Jesus? Because what Matthew is doing, whether you realize it or not, is he is carefully putting these hints and that are designed to help us understand who Jesus is and how we're supposed to understand him. He's loaded this genealogy with information of here's who Jesus is, so we understand it. So we're going to trace uh, Jesus' genealogy through, first of all, he says he's a son of David. Now David was a Jewish king. In fact, he was probably the most famous Jewish king, the most celebrated of all the Jewish kings. And there's a line in uh, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament where he says, when the Messiah comes, he will reign on King David's throne. So the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah who was, who was going to come from David's bloodline. He was going to reign on David's throne. That's how they understood the Messiah when he came. And so uh, Matthew carefully traces Jesus' genealogy from King David. So the first thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus, he's a king. And a king, you relate to a king a little differently than you relate to a friend or a counselor uh, or even a, a teacher. You relate to a king in a different way because a king has authority. A king has power. And a king is bringing a kingdom with him. And Jesus talked endlessly about the kingdom of God that he was bringing, that he was talking about, and that we could live in right, even right here and right now that would go on for eternity. 
So Jesus was a king, and in a king's kingdom, things are the way the king wants them to be. It's not a democracy. It's the way the king has designed it to be. So a king has power, a king has authority. That's the first thing we're meant to understand about who Jesus is. But for the Gentiles, they're still not sure. I mean, that's great. Okay, that's great. He's a Jewish king, but what does that have to do with me? And so what Matthew does is he then traces Jesus' genealogy through Abraham. Now, why would that matter? Why would that be important to the Gentiles that he traces Jesus' identity and his line through uh, the person of Abraham? Here's what we know about Abraham. If you go and look for Abraham's story, you'll find it in the book of Genesis. It's all the way at the beginning of the Bible in the first book of the Bible. And what we learn is that Abraham, when God calls Abraham, the promise he makes to Abraham is he says, Abraham, through you, I am going to bless all peoples. Through you and through your offspring, I am eventually going to bless all people. God reveals that his intention is to eventually bless all people, not just the Jewish people, but all people through the promise he made to Abraham that was going to be uh, fulfilled when the Messiah came. And so uh, why does this matter? It, It matters because for an entire group of people that felt like left out of the Jesus story, Matthew was trying to say this is for everyone. And I mean everyone. Let me show you what he does next because he takes that idea even further. In Matthew's genealogy, there are five women that are included. Now that's significant in itself because uh, in the first century, you would never include women in a genealogy. If you were trying to establish someone's rights and identity, you would never include women. First of all, women had very little status in this uh, time. In fact, the reason why so many women followed Jesus and so many women became his disciples was that Jesus elevated the status of women in the society that he lived in. But you would never include women in a genealogy typically. The other reason is that they understood that the life of a person came from a man. So, you know, in their limited understanding, they observed a woman got pregnant when she'd been with a man. Therefore, the life of a person must come from a man. And so they would only trace the genealogy typically through men. But Matthew includes five women in the genealogy. And here they are. These are the five women that he includes in the genealogy. Mary, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and Uriah's wife. So I just want to walk through those and just ask the question, why would he include these women specifically? Because he's dropping hints. He's trying to get us to understand something about who Jesus is and how God is going to bless all people through Jesus. Uh, First one is Mary. Well, Mary makes sense. Right? Mary is a righteous Jewish woman. It makes sense why he would uh, include Mary in Jesus' genealogy. But these other four women that are listed here, not a single one of them is Jewish. They were all Gentile women. And what's even more interesting is that what we know them from is, um, well, they didn't have the best reputations in the story of the Bible. So to walk us through, uh, Tamar, what we know her from in the story in the Old Testament, Tamar seduced her father-in-law while he was drunk, and she got pregnant with twins. Both of those twins are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. That's what we know her from. Ruth was a Moabite woman. What you need to know about the Moabites is that when the nation of Israel was going into the land of Canaan, they were met by an enemy. It was the Moabite people, and they basically tried to stop them and keep them uh, from fulfilling the promises that God had made to his people. So Ruth is a Moabite woman. She's an enemy of the Israelite people. And through her story, God redeemed her, and she became a part of the promise of Abraham, and she's included in the genealogy of Jesus. 
It goes on from there, uh, Rahab. What we know about Rahab, the reason we know her story is that Rahab was a prostitute who lied. Literally, that's her contribution to the story in the Bible. She was a prostitute, and when she met God's people, she lied on their behalf to help them. And then uh, God basically rescued her from the situation she was in. She's a prostitute who lied. That was her contribution, and she is in the genealogy of Jesus. And then the last one, Matthew really makes his point. He says, and also Uriah's wife. He doesn't use her name. We know her name as Bathsheba. That's her name. But Matthew doesn't say her name. And the reason he doesn't use her name is because he's trying to emphasize what she's known for in the story. Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, was the woman who King David had an affair with while she was still Uriah's wife, while she was still married to another person. So even King David, the great Jewish king, even his hands weren't perfectly clean. And he had an affair with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and it's through their union, through their bloodline, that Jesus, the Messiah, comes. And she is recorded in the genealogy of Jesus. Why does Matthew do that? Why does Matthew include these people on purpose? But the reason is because Matthew's trying to say If you come from a messed up, dysfunctional, broken family, you belong. Jesus came for you too. If you've experienced infidelity, if you've been cheated on, if you've made mistakes, if you've you've struggled with substances, if you've made a mess of things in your family, if your family tree is just a disaster and you would never want to put it on a resume, you'd be scared for people to see it, Jesus came for you too. He's here for all people, for everyone. And so if you're the type that likes to write notes or take notes, I'd encourage you to jot down this uh, statement. Through the gift of Jesus, and that's exactly what Jesus is. He's a gift to all people. Through the gift of Jesus, Christmas reminds us that we are all welcomed to be part of God's family, no matter how messed up our past. For those of us who are followers of Jesus here in this room, we all share a day. Uh, We all share a day where it dawned on us that Jesus was a gift given to welcome us into his family, to welcome us into God's family. There was a day for every one of us that that dawned on us. For me, that day happened when I was 14 years old. And it was an incredible feeling to get this news that Jesus was a gift and that God was actually welcoming me into his family uh, because, to be very honest with you, my family wasn't all that great. Um, my dad uh, basically was pursuing a career, a job that he put first and foremost above everything else in life. And so that was the only real pursuit of life. His family and everything else kind of came second. I, my dad traveled all the time. I have very few memories of my father before the age of about 12. And so what happened is that about 12, my, when I was about 12 years old, my mom and he, their marriage was falling apart. Things were going downhill fast. And in kind of a last-ditch effort to try to, you know, reconcile some things and save the marriage, my dad took a, another job, and we moved to a different town. And I was the new kid in school, new kid in a town. And uh, there was a guy who invited our family to go to church with him. And so we went to church. As a new family in town, we, we didn't know what else to do to meet people or whatever, And we came as a very broken mess to this church, much like this church. And over the course of the next year, my dad's heart changed. And one by one, all of us accepted Jesus. We accepted the gift of Jesus as our Savior. 
And so when we talk about Jesus being a gift, welcoming us into God's family, you have to understand Jesus truly was a gift to my family. He truly was a gift that, that restored and reconciled and brought healing to my family and our relationships. Now, what's interesting about Jesus as a gift is, you know, there are some gifts that you receive that uh, require a little bit of humility in order to receive them. Uh, so over the course of the next two days, either tonight or tomorrow morning on Christmas Day, you, all of us in this room, you guys are going to open gifts. And there are certain gifts that when you open them, there's, there's like a message that you can't miss uh, that you kind of have to humble yourself and receive. So if you open a gift sometime in the next two days and it's from your friend and it's a diet book, there's a message there. And, if, and then if you open your gift from your spouse and it's a treadmill, and then you open your gift from another friend and it's a book entitled Overcoming Selfishness, there, there's a message there, right? Like you have to humble yourself in order to look at those people and say, thank you so much for getting me these gifts. You have to embrace a truth about yourself, right? That apparently I am a fat, selfish person. That's what I am. In order to really embrace that gift, that's what I have to realize about myself. I, I call those kinds of gifts a chocolate-covered turd, by the way. <laughs> Looks great on the outside until you bite into the chewy center and you realize, oh, there, there's something here I have to embrace. It's not so pleasant about myself if I really want to receive this gift. What you need to know is Jesus is that kind of gift. He's that kind of gift. That when you receive him, there's actually a message about what it says about you. And in order to really understand who Jesus is, and in order to accept him as the gift that he is, you have to understand what, he, what he's saying about us. And so uh, we've looked at what Jesus' genealogy says about Jesus, and we've talked about what the beginning of Matthew's gospel says about Jesus. Uh, now I just want to ask the question, what does the gift of Jesus say about us? What does the gift of Jesus actually say about us? If you go forward in the story in Matthew chapter 1, uh, you get to the next part of the story that we all know and we're all familiar with. Uh, Mary, this young Jewish person, um, she's visited by the Holy Spirit. She becomes pregnant and she's told, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. And she's engaged to be married to Joseph, but he's not sure about this whole thing. He hears about it and it's like, man, I don't know about this whole virgin birth thing. And, and he's not uh, too convinced. And so he has plans to divorce her or, or break off the engagement quietly. And in verse 20, an angel appears and uh, it says, Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You're to name him Jesus, and the reason is because he will save his people from their sins. What's interesting about that and why the, the angel chose the name Jesus is because Jesus, in their original language, the name Jesus, if you break it down, means literally, the Lord saves. So he says, you're going to have a son, you're going to name him, the Lord saves, and the reason you're going to name him that is because he's going to save the people from their sins. So to ask the question, in order to really embrace who Jesus is, there's a bit of a message there. Jesus didn't come as a great teacher, although many people see him that way. And you can see him that way. He didn't come as a guy trying to start a religion. In fact, it was his followers that started the religion of Christianity. The way we're introduced to Jesus, the way that, that we're told here's who he is and here's what he's about, is he's introduced to us as a savior. So the truth that we have to at some point embrace about ourselves 
is that Jesus came as a Savior because we needed to be saved. Jesus came as a Savior because we needed to be saved. We couldn't fix ourselves. Uh, and, and that's the second truth that we've got to realize about ourselves if we're going to embrace this, is this idea that we, we couldn't fix ourselves. We couldn't uh, perform our Christianity well enough. We couldn't make ourselves good enough. A lot of people say, well, I, just, I try to be a good person. And that's great, but, but there's no way you could possibly be a, a good enough person to be worthy of salvation. In fact, in Isaiah, there's a verse that says, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We couldn't fix ourselves. If we could fix ourselves, if we could just perform our Christianity a little bit better, if we could just do our good deeds a little better, Jesus would not have come as a savior. He would have something else. We'd be celebrating something else uh, for the Christmas story. And the message of Christmas wouldn't be that a savior came. The message would be God saying, hey, try harder. If we could save ourselves, the message would be, buck up. You guys need to get your stuff together. You need to try harder. Here's some more guilt. Here's some more shame. Here's some more condemnation. I'm going to heap it on you until you do better. That would be the Christmas story if we could fix ourselves. What we have to embrace about ourselves is Jesus came as a Savior because every single one of us, you, me, all of us, we needed to be saved. We couldn't fix ourselves. We couldn't perform well enough. And this life of independence, of I'm going to try to do it myself, I'm going to try to, to take care of things myself, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't work for any of us. And so the other thing we've got to embrace is that humility and repentance are how we receive salvation. Humility and repentance are actually how we receive the gift of Jesus. If you go forward three chapters from where we're at right now in the book of Matthew, Jesus begins his public ministry. He's an adult and he goes around and he begins to preach a message. In the synagogues, he preaches it. When he heals people, he preaches it. When he interacts with people uh, and, he, and he performs any of the miracles that you read about, he preaches it again and again, Matthew 4, 17. The message Jesus says again and again and again is repent of your sins and turn to God. He just keeps saying it. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Jesus had like one sermon. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Now what you need to know is that word repent does not mean uh, apologize and try to be nice. That's what we think it means. You know, apologize and just try to be nice. Try to do better. That's not what, that's not what repent means. Repent literally means, that word means to turn around and run to God. To, to just turn around and run to God. To stop trying to live the independent life where I'm trying to do it, I'm trying to do it as best as I can and I'm going to perform it. I don't need any help. And to run to God and just be completely dependent on him. That's what that word means. To humble yourself and turn and repent. I'll be honest with you, this didn't really make sense to me fully uh, at 14 years old when I first started following Jesus. Uh, and in fact, it's something that over the course of my life and the, and the years of my life, I've continued to have to learn and to incorporate into the way I live my life every day. By the time I was in my late 20s, I had figured out how to perform my Christianity pretty well. As a pastor, uh, as a husband and a father, I, I, I had figured out how to, how to perform that and to do really well with it. And then um, a series of things happened in my life uh, that just sort of undid my great performance. My wife and I have four boys. Our third son was born. Everything seemed normal. Everything seemed great. And then about two years old, we were told that he had autism. And 
I had no idea what that meant. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't, uh, I fa- not only could I not fix it, I couldn't even understand it. It made no sense to me what was going on. And for, for a pastor who's performing their Christianity, who's, you know, pastors are supposed to have this perfect family, and our family was not perfect. And I couldn't hide it from any of you. Uh, then in my early 30s, over the course of about a year, without intending to, but over the course slowly of, a, of about a year, I walked slowly down the path of an emotional affair. And I got about as close as you can come to blowing up my family, blowing up my marriage, blowing up the ministry that I was leading. And, and uh, you know, I had prided myself for so long on, on being a good leader and, and a pastor. I knew how to fix things. I knew how to solve problems. And I found myself in the middle of this mess. I couldn't even explain what I'd done. I couldn't even make sense of it to myself. And two years ago, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. And I'm thankful to be able to say right now the news is very good and, and, and things are in a good place with that. But when that news first came, I, I didn't know what to do with it. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't control the outcome. I couldn't make anything be the way I wanted it to be. And there were moments where I, I just, you know, despite my best efforts to try to control that and manipulate I couldn't hide it. I couldn't control it. And I just found myself sort of running to God. And here's what I've learned. I'm 40 years old right now, so here's, here's really all I have to offer you today. It's Christmas. This is, this is all I've got. And what, what I'm coming to understand about my life is those events in my life were not God abandoning me. They weren't God trying to destroy me. They weren't God trying to expose me for the fake that I was. That, that's not what those events in my life were. Those events were God's grace to me. Those events were God drawing near to me and helping me understand that he came as a savior because I need to be saved. That that he wants me to give up that independent life where I'm trying to do it myself, fix myself, prove myself, and he he wants me to run to him. Because in him, I can find salvation. In him, I can find wholeness, and I am. So this is all I got today. This is all I have to offer you, Christmas 2017. All I really know is that I am a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. That's all I got. And Jesus really does save people. He really does give people a new life. He really does forgive past sins and brokenness. He really does help us live into the promises that he has for us as people. He really does do that. And and the greatest celebration we have as a church and that I I have is seeing him do that in my life, seeing him do that in in the lives of people who are a part of our church. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you an opportunity to accept the gift of Jesus, just to do that. And so um, there's there's a way to do that. We talked about it involves humility and repentance And Romans 10 verse 9 is probably the clearest place in all the scriptures that describes how to just take that step to accept the gift of Jesus. And so maybe you have never heard this before. Maybe you've been trying to be a good person and just prove yourself and live that independent life and fix yourself. And maybe tonight you just need to say, man, I'm going to accept the gift of Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the church and you've drifted away. And maybe today is is the moment to just say, man, God, I'm, I'm coming back to you. This made sense to me at one time in my life, but I'm coming back, I'm repenting, I'm turning to you. And, and Romans 10, 9 just says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be saved, you will be saved. So two things that are happening is one is declaring that Jesus is Lord. And again, Jesus, the first thing we learn about him, he's a king, he's Lord. So we, we declare him that way, that he is Lord. He has power and authority and dominion over, over me, over my life. That his kingdom applies to me. So we declare him as Lord. And then the second thing is we believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave. And the reason that's important is because just like Jesus was risen from the grave to a new life, we can have a new life in him too. So here's what I'd love to do. If everybody just bow their heads in the room, just everyone right where you're sitting. And I just want to lead you. If that's you, I want to just lead you in not so much a prayer as much as a declaration right now. And just say this with me or say it in your own words. We'll begin Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner and I need to be saved. And so today I confess you as Lord of my life and I ask you to make me a new person. I believe that you rose from the grave and you have a new life for me. Jesus, I ask from this moment on that you would lead me in my life and that you would perform your work of salvation in my life. Jesus name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, my friends, what we believe based on scripture is that you just got saved. You just took you just took the step of being reconciled to God. Your sins have been forgiven and you have been made into a new person and there's a new life that's waiting for you that you can begin living. And so here's the thing, we need to celebrate that. <laughs> In fact, that's what we celebrate as a church is that Jesus is a gift that welcomes everybody into God's family. We celebrate when people go from death to life. And so here's what I want to do. Um, Jesus coming into our world changed everything for the world. But for some of you, Jesus coming into the world changed everything for your world personally in this past year. Maybe even tonight or today um, that's happened, even just as we've just prayed. And so here's what I want to do. When you walked in, hopefully you were given uh, a candle and it has a drip protector on it. And so uh, I'd love for you, if you haven't uh, gotten that, to grab that. And here's, here's what we're going to do. If one of three things is true for you, in a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if one of these three things is true for you, I want you to get out of your seat. I want you to come down. We have three candles right here on the edge of the stage. And I want you to be the first to light your candle. And then you take it back to your seat. And then all the rest of us, as we sing, will get our light from you and everybody else can light their candle and we can, we can just begin. But I want, if one of three things is true for you, and the reason for this is because for some of you, uh, this past year has been a little brighter for you than the year before because of one of three things. Either in this past year, if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if it has dawned on you, even if that just happened today, even if that just happened now, if it dawned on you, Jesus is my Savior, I want you to be the first as we start to sing to come down here and light your candle from this candle and take it back to your seat. The second thing is, if in this past year or even today, if you came back home, maybe you grew up in church, maybe this was stuff you, all these things that we've been talking about, maybe you've heard them before in your life, but you drifted, you walked away. There was a time in life, or maybe you interpreted events in your life that happened as, man, God has abandoned me. God's, God's not there for me. He's forsaken me. And tonight you're saying, man, I'm coming back to the Lord. That, these events have been God's grace to me to show me that I need a Savior. If that's you, I want you to be in this group of people that's coming forward first. And then the third thing is, if you got baptized this past year, I'm looking around the room and I know some of you got baptized in this past year. 
If that's you, I want you to be part of that group that comes down because your world is a little brighter this year than it was last year because Jesus has changed your life and made a difference in your life. So that's what we're going to do. So everybody stand. And we've got extra candles over here. I'll hang out here at the stage in case somebody didn't get a a candle or uh, one's not working properly or whatever. Um, But let's go ahead and start singing. And if you're in one of those three categories, you come down and light your candle and take it back. And then the rest of us can get lit from you.